0: Hi everyone, welcome to this reading of the Iowa Capital Dispatch here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. This is Andrew Hoppe Reader filling in. This is my first time reading the Dispatch, so um, I'm not really sure how it quite usually runs other than to listen to it, which is um, usually a pretty smooth read by Mr. Gazier. but uh, he is out this week, so I'll just bring it to you the best I can for the next 55 minutes or so. And we begin with our first story here in the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. Dated February 17th, demolition of the I-74 Mississippi River Bridge is a big, complex task. It was written by Ed Tibbetts. For years, people in the Quad Cities have awaited demolition of the old Interstate 74 bridge between Bettendorf and Moline. It's not that people here hate the bridge, although the narrow road width and nearly non-existent shoulders gave some drivers the shakes. It's just that its demise would mean the new bridge in the planning stages for decades would be complete. Also, anticipation of the span's demise in some quarters was driven by the prospect that it would be imploded, that once the new bridge was opened, the old twin bridges might be brought down in a spectacular crash of steel, concrete, and dust. Alas, it was not to be. Iowa DOT officials said last year there would be no big implosion. Instead, crews are undertaking more nuanced methods. If that's the right word to describe the demolition of two spans that include 16 million tons of steel, piers that plunge into the Mississippi River bed, and large towers and accompanying suspension cables that rise high above the road surface. Despite the lack of one big implosion, however, the intricacies of dismantling the bridge while simultaneously limiting environmental effects and maintaining work safety for crews, river traffic, and drivers traversing the new I-74 span nearby is no simple or boring task. Since last September, planners, engineers, laborers, carpenters, ironworkers, and electricians, among others, have methodically toiled to dismantle the spans, one built in 1935 and the other finished in 1960. The Helm Group, whose corporate base is in Freeport, Illinois, has the $23.3 million demolition contract. From a distance, the bridge doesn't look that much different, but up close, the changes are visible. A chunk of the span on the Bettendorf side of the river is gone. The concrete decking over the river also has been taken out, while roughly 4 million tons of steel have been removed, according to a recent estimate. Still, there is plenty of complex work left to be done. Because of the proximity of the new bridge and the interrelation among the different spans that make up the old I-74 bridge, there are actually four different bridge types that make up the structure. Extra planning and care must be taken to limit movement of the old bridge while its various pieces are removed. It's all interconnected, so when you start removing a bridge like this, you actually have to engineer how you're going to remove it. It's a very complicated process, said George Ryan, who is the I-74 corridor manager. For example, steps had to be taken to balance removal of concrete and steel to limit the movement of the bridge towers. Those towers will move, Ryan said, protecting the environment. In addition, on the Moline side of the span, they could not let steel pieces hit the water because of the presence of muscle beds, so they had to work from bar- barges. This also is where there are fairly shallow areas of the river. Officials have estimated 1.2 million mussels, including endangered species protected by federal law, are in the I-74 bridge footprint. A significant number of the mussels have been removed, beginning with a big effort in 2016, but a large number remain. We're trying to minimize the impact to those mussels and the river in general, That said Scott Gritters, fisheries biologist with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. Any of those features of the bridge, if we blow it up or tear it down, could drop on the mussel bed itself, and we're trying to do our best to minimize those impacts to that bed. The mussels also carry benefits for the river. Mussels filter plankton and bacteria out of the river, Gritters said, which help the entire system. They're kind of like a mini sewer treatment plant, he said. Taking down the towers. As the steel is removed, it is cut up into smaller pieces, then taken by local recyclers. The demolition contractor is allowed to sell the steel to recyclers, a practice that lowers the price of the bid and the cost to the taxpayers, Ryan said. It's pretty high-value steel, he says. This summer is when the more dramatic task of demolishing the signature green towers and suspension cables is expected to take place. The The contractor's intent is to use explosives to take down the towers and suspension cables, and it will be done one bridge at a time. Ryan said the use of explosives, which must meet state and federal requirements, will involve a coordinated effort among the contractor, the U.S. Coast Guard, Corps of Engineers, Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Natural Resources, the Iowa and Illinois DOTs, and the cities of Moline and Bettendorf. The contractor's plan is under review, Ryan said, but commercial and recreational traffic along the river will be shut down then, while it is anticipated vehicular traffic on the new I-74 bridge will be shut down too. It's estimated closures of the new bridge would last about an hour at a time. There is likely to be a great deal of public interest in this part of the operation. Some more information will be released later. Explosives also will likely be used to remove select support piers. Others will be removed by hydraulic methods, with those in the Mississippi River taken down to a point two feet below the bottom of the river. Traffic closures also are anticipated when those explosions take place. Not all of the piers will be removed. Two piers on the Illinois side of the river will be left as so as to minimize disruption to the mussel habitat. Navigation lights will be installed on the piers to aid boaters. The demolition also involves an underwater survey to ensure all the debris is removed along with a final cleanup along the riverbanks. Completion of the project is expected in mid-2024. After that, the span that once carried an average of 74,000 vehicles per day will be gone. The tall green towers that grace the skyline here for decades will fully give way to the twin basket-handle arches on the new span that now are a prominent architectural feature in the Quad City skyline. The new bridge fully opened a little more than a year ago. Preserving history, still not all of the old I-74 bridge will be lost forever. A two-foot-long section of cross frame from the span built in 1935 was donated in 2021 to the Putnam Museum and Science Center in Davenport, where it has been on display in the museum's local history exhibit. The I-74 bridge team is also coordinating with the cities of Moline and Bettendorf about preserving pieces of the old bridge, perhaps to go to local museums. Those discussions are in the early stages. The piece moved to the Putnam was donated after the museum reached out to the bridge team looking for photographs, said Nora Morerty. Curatorial Project Coordinator at the museum. The exhibit with the bridge piece is currently closed for renovation, but when it reopens, a section of bridge will be back on display, Morarity said. The previous I-74 bridge is something just about every Quad citizen has driven across and is part of our lives living here, she said. In addition, preserving pieces of the old bridge causes us to remember that our heritage isn't just something that exists in the past. It helps remind people they're living history every day, Morarity said. A story by Ed Tibbetts of Davenport, who has covered politics, government, and trends for more than three decades in the Quad Cities. A former reporter and editorial page editor for the Quad City Times. He is now a freelance journalist who publishes the Along the Mississippi River newsletter on Substack. He is a member of the Iowa Writers Collaborative. That's Ed Tibbetts. A very well written article from him. Our next article, written by Ariana Figueroa. It's from February 16th. U.S. House Speaker visit to Arizona border labeled publicity stump by White House. We'll see what this is about. Dateline Washington. U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And a handful of Republican freshman lawmakers traveled to the U.S.-Mexico border Thursday where they continued to blame the Biden administration for the fentanyl drug crisis. Leading up to the visit, the White House called it a publicity stunt. McCarthy said there needs to be more funding and support for border security to prevent fentanyl from being smuggled into the United States and that Democrats and the White House need to work with Republicans to address the issue. McCarthy traveled to Tucson, Arizona with freshman Republican Representatives Lori Chavez de Reamer of Oregon and Juan Kiskomani of Arizona, Jen Kiggins of Virginia, and Derek Van Orden of Wisconsin. The Republican 1st termers said they ran for Congress on the issue of border security and because their communities are dealing with a fentanyl crisis. The fentanyl crisis is directly impacting and literally killing that American dream for hundreds of thousands of Americans in this country, Kiskomani said. During Joe Biden's State of the Union address to Congress, he called for bipartisan action on fentanyl, such as expanded access to opioid-related addiction treatment and increased efforts to curb fentanyl trafficking at the southern border and via commercial delivery packages. The U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs held a hearing Wednesday About the fentanyl crisis, where several Biden administration officials detailed that funding for better screening technology at ports of entry at the southern border is needed to catch vehicles trafficking the drug. Administration pushback. White House officials strongly criticized the visit in advance. House Republicans should spend less time on partisan publicity stunts and more time working on solutions says Ian Sams, a White House spokesperson, in a statement. Solutions are what Biden is focused on, and his plan is working. House Republicans would be wise to join him to work together to strengthen our immigration system and fund border security. McCarthy blamed the Biden administration for a record high number of unauthorized border crossings and said Republicans will bring U.S. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas in for questioning on security at the border. GOP lawmakers have introduced a resolution to impeach Mayorkas for high crimes and misdemeanors. Sam's argue that unauthorized border crossings are down to their lowest levels in years. Republicans have criticized the Biden administration for this. Unauthorized border crossings sharply dropped from December of 2022 to January of this year, according to CBP data. It's a 40 percent drop from nearly 252,000 migrants who were stopped at the border to about 156,000 migrants migrants stopped at the border. The decline also follows several enforcement policies the Biden administration announced for four countries to allow them to enter the U.S. legally if they had a sponsor in the U.S. The Biden administration has also kept in place and expanded the use of Title 42, a health policy put in place due to the coronavirus pandemic that allows the U.S. to expel any non-citizens during a health crisis. The U.S. Supreme Court planned to hear arguments on the policy in early March, but removed the case from its calendar on Thursday. The Biden administration plans to end the COVID-19 public health emergency, which serves as the legal basis of the policy on May 11th. In November, a federal judge blocked the government from continuing to use Title 42, calling the policy arbitrary and capricious in violation of the Administrative Procedure Act. Border Tour The GOP lawmakers were briefed at U.S. Customs and Border Patrol's Tucson sector headquarters, went on an aerial tour of the border, and visited a local ranch. So far, Republicans have held House Judiciary and House Oversight and Accountability Committee hearings on immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border and plan to hold more this Congress. The House Judiciary Committee, GOP, will hold a hearing on the border in Yuma, Arizona on February 23rd. Democrats on the committee called the next hearing, The next week, another stunt. House Judiciary Committee Ranking Member Gerald Nadler and Immigration Integrity, Security, and Enforcement Subcommittee Ranking Member Pramila J. Appal said in a statement that Democrats on the committee would take their own trip to the southern border sometime next month to be briefed by government officials and community leaders. Instead of focusing on real solutions to a complicated problem, judiciary Republicans will once again not hear from any federal government witnesses at their hearing. Further cementing this hearing as a brazen act of political grandstanding, they said in a joint statement, As a result, Democrats who have been to the border regularly for the last few years will not attend next week's performative hearing. In other news, after abuse, death, and staffing issues, Iowa nursing homes added to federal watch lists. A story by Clark Kaufman dated February 17th. That's the day I'm recording this, the afternoon of Friday, February 17th. Hope you're having a great weekend, everyone. Three Iowa care facilities with a recent history of resident care issues have been added to a list of the nation's worst nursing homes. The three homes join seven other Iowa care facilities already deemed eligible for inclusion on the federal government's list of special focused facilities that have recurring quality of care problems. The three newly added homes are Parkridge Specialty Care in Pleasant Hill, which is managed by Care Initiatives of West Des Moines, the 90-bed facility has a one-star overall rating from the federal government and was fined $178,003 by the federal government in 2022. In addition, Medicare suspended payments to the home in August of 2022. Last fall, state inspectors cited the home for a four-hour delay in assessing and treating a resident who complained of chest pain. The resident was pronounced dead shortly after being transported to a hospital emergency room. The New London Specialty Care in Henry County, also managed by Care Initiatives, the 46-bed facility has a one-star overall rating from the federal government and was fined $14,508 in 2021. In November, the home was cited for 18 federal violations, including a failure to protect residents from sexual abuse. Finally, the Rock Rapids Health Center, in Lyon County, far northwest Iowa, which is managed by Arborita Healthcare of Florida, the 44-bed facility has a one-star overall rating from the federal government and was fined $216,869 in 2021. In addition, Medicare suspended payments to this home in January of 2021 and August of 2020. Last November, state inspectors substantiated 10 separate complaints against the home, although no citations were issued or fines imposed. The home had four different administrators over the course of 10 months in 2022, had lost long-distance service due to failure to pay bills, and had been so short-staffed that the head of maintenance and other non-medical staff had, to, had been asked to work as nurses' aides. The three nursing homes take the place of three other Iowa facilities that had previously been deemed eligible for special focus status. Sioux City's Touchstone Healthcare Community, which closed last summer and is no longer in operation, Dunlap Specialty Care, another care initiatives facility, and the Ivy at Davenport, which is managed by Summit Care Corporation of California. The federal special focus facilities listed list is updated quarterly by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and includes homes deemed by CMS to have a history of serious quality issues. Nationally, there are 88 nursing facilities on the list. With one or two slots filled by each state, those homes are enrolled in a special program intended to stimulate improvements in their quality of care through increased regulatory oversight. Because the number of special focus facilities is capped, new facilities, even those that have earned CMS's lowest ratings for quality, can't be named a special focus facility until other homes in that same state improve and graduate from the program or close. That's a process that can take four years or more. As a result, there are several homes in each state that are deemed eligible for special focus status due to ongoing quality of care issues, but they are unable to benefit from actual enrollment in the special focus facility program. Iowa typically has 10 facilities on the list that are considered eligible for enrollment in the program. Until recently, the two Iowa homes currently enrolled in the special focus facilities program were owned by the same Iowa-based company, OHC Facilities. The company recently completed bankruptcy proceedings and the homes are now under new ownership. QHC Villa Fort Dodge has been a special focus facility for 16 months, while QHC Winterset North has been in the program for 25 months. In addition to the three Iowa homes recently added to the federal list, seven other Iowa care facilities continue to be listed as candidates for the special focus designation due to ongoing quality of care issues. They are Griswold Rehabilitation and Healthcare Center, which has been a candidate for four months. Northern Mahaska Specialty Care in Oskaloosa, which has been a candidate for four months. Oakland Manor, which has been a candidate for seven months. Arbor Court in Mount Pleasant, which has been a candidate for 12 months. Aspire of Primgar, which has been a candidate for 16 months. Genesis Senior Living in Des Moines, which has been a candidate for eight months. QHC Mitchellville, which has been a candidate for 32 months, typically all of the homes that are deemed eligible for special focus designation have about twice the average number of violations cited by state inspectors. They have more serious problems than most other nursing homes, including harm or injury to residents, and they have established a pattern of serious problems that has persisted over a long period of time. Next up, UI Graduate Student Union regrets open bargaining with wide gulf on wages. As written by Eleanor Hildenbrand. Dated February 16th, the University of Iowa's Graduate Student Union and State Board of Regents representatives began their collective bargaining process on Thursday with drastically different proposals. Campaign to Organize Graduate Students, or COGS, the campus's Graduate Student Union proposed a 10% wage increase for the 2023-25 contracts. Union representatives also asked for contracts to include minimum remote working days, paid leave for graduate student workers who are parents, and free parking options for graduate students when it is available. COGS, also known as UE Local 896, also wants to set early deadlines for appointment letters to be given to graduate students. Caleb Klipowitz, COGS Press and Publicity Committee Chair pointed to chemistry teaching assistants receiving their assignments a few weeks before classes began. Representatives for the regions countered with a 3% wage increase. They did not discuss additional provisions and contracts. Mike Galloway, chief negotiator and spokesperson for the board in collective bargaining negotiations, said the offer was the minimum the university would be mandated to pay graduate student workers. Different departments, he said, could choose to pay them more. Following the region's proposal, COGS President Hannah Zeta, who works in anthropology, said many students in departments like that get paid the minimum because some departments cannot afford to pay more. Nearly 30 graduate student workers attended the session, many holding signs reading, Grads Deserve a Living Wage and Defend Iowa Education. After the session, Zeta said in an interview, that it was clear the preparation was different for her team versus the regents' representatives. They didn't ask us any questions, and the questions were asked them they didn't know the answer to, or they told us they'd go and deliberate, they said. That speaks volumes. The non-answers are really telling. During the proposal, COGS member John Tappan said the 10% wage increase was inflation-adjusted. He said the current stipends rank among the lowest in the Big Ten. Iowa is only above Nebraska, Purdue, and Minnesota in its payments. Parental leave. COGS member Flannery Curran presented COGS's request to maintain current sick days and pay leave for graduate students. She also presented on cogs New proposed item asking for six weeks of fully paid parental leave following the birth or adoption of a new child. Looking at the Big Ten, we are falling behind here as well, she said. 71% or 10 out of the 14 universities in the Big Ten guarantee graduate students paid leave separate from sick leave. Following the proposed presentations, Zeta and COGS members asked questions about parental leave and why there was no policy added to previous contracts. Regents' representatives said the state currently has no policy for parental leave for state employees, including graduate student workers. Kristen Bauer, the Regents' associate counsel and director of Human Resources and Merit Systems, pointed to House Study Bill 91 proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds. The bill would provide four weeks of paid parental leave to state employees for the birth or adoption of a child. Until a bill is passed, she said, there is little the Regents can do. It's difficult to predict what it's going to look like until we have what it actually looks like, she said. We've been very supportive of it, parental leave, that is, for several years, but our hands are tied. When asked why Iowa State University could offer paid leave, Bauer said it was from a bridge grant. ISU's policy gives 12 weeks of paid parental leave to graduate assistants, pre-doctoral scholars, and postdoctoral scholars after birth or adoption. The difference between Iowa and other Big Ten institutions, Galloway said, is because of differences in state laws. Moving forward, Zeta said in an interview that they are prepared for negotiations which begin on February 27th when the two entities meet again in a closed session. Deliberations continue until a final contract is agreed upon. It was really good seeing everyone come out to support this even in a snowstorm. We know so many more would have been here with other weather, they said. I'm really excited to keep building up our union because that's the main point of this. Regents and COGS representatives will meet in closed sessions until they come to an agreement for graduate students' contracts for the next two years. In other news, this under the Capital Clicks section. This written by Jennifer Shutt. Biden's annual physical shows he is a healthy, vigorous 80-year-old male. Okay. And the photo shows Joe Biden getting a COVID vaccination in January of 2021. And uh, anyway, that's the photo by Alex Wong of Getty Images. Dateline, Washington, where Joe Biden received a mostly positive review of his health from doctors at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center on Thursday after undergoing his annual physical. The evaluation, official evaluation of Biden's health comes as the former vice president and long U.S. Longtime U.S. senator from Delaware, weighs whether to run for re-election in 2024. Biden remains a healthy, vigorous 80-year-old male who is fit to successfully execute the duties of the presidency, to include those as chief executive, head of state, and commander-in-chief, Dr. Kevin O'Connor wrote in a five-page summary. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre said Thursday afternoon, before the report was released, that Biden is confident he will be able to keep up with the demands of being president in six years when he would be 86. This is a president that works day in and day out in a grueling fashion with a grueling schedule and delivers, Jean-Pierre said. Thursday's report on Biden's health was similar to the report on his last physical. In November of 2021, when O'Connor wrote the president remained a healthy, vigorous 78-year-old male who is fit to successfully execute the duties of the president. In both reports, O'Connor noted Biden was being treated for a common type of heart arrhythmia called non-valvular atrial fibrillation for which Biden remained completely asymptomatic, hyperlipidemia, or high cholesterol, gastroesophageal reflux or acid reflux, seasonal allergies, a stiffened gait, spinal arthritis, and mild sensory peripheral neuropathy of both feet. Peripheral neuropathy is often the result of damage to nerves outside the brain and spinal cord, in this case, Biden's feet. It can result in weakness, numbness, or pain, according to the Mayo Clinic. The National Institutes of Health estimates more than 20 million Americans have some type of peripheral neuropathy. Say that 10 times fast. See, I can't even say 10 times. All of the conditions were listed as stable in Thursday's report though the November 2021 report listed the stiff gait as newly significant and neuropathy of the feet as a new finding. The president's gait appears to be perceptibly stiffer and less fluid than it has been in the past, O'Connor wrote in November 2021, noting that Biden said he experiences early morning stiffness that improves through the day. As previously reported, he has sustained a number of orthopedic and sports-related injuries over the years and is followed by physical therapy for ongoing wellness and fitness exercises prescription, he wrote in November 2021. It is also well known that approximately a year ago, he sustained a fracture in his right midfoot, which could certainly contribute to a gait abnormality. In Thursday's report, O'Connor wrote that while Biden's gait remained stiff, it hasn't worsened since last year. Symptoms from the wa- from the peripheral neuropathy have not progressed in his exam, and his exam during Thursday's physical was a bit improved, according to O'Connor. Physical therapy and exercise, O'Connor wrote, would continue to focus on general flexibility to address Biden's stiffened gait. Ball custom orthotics would continue being used to address the peripheral neuropathy in his feet. Biden continues taking three prescription medications, Crestor to treat his high cholesterol, Demista nasal spray for allergies, and Eliquis to prevent blood clots, and two over-the-counter medications, Allegra for allergies, and Pepsid for acid reflux. Biden's physical Thursday also included screenings for skin cancer, an eye exam and dental visit, all of which were listed as routine, though one small lesion from his chest was sent for a skin cancer biopsy. The most notable update to the president's medical history since the last physical, O'Connor wrote, was his COVID-19 diagnosis in July 2022 and his rebound COVID-19. Biden has not experienced any symptoms of long COVID-19 since then, he wrote. Fortunately, having been fully vaccinated and twice boosted at the time of initial infection, the president experienced only mild symptoms consisting of a mostly deep, loose cough and hoarseness, O'Connor wrote, adding Biden has since gotten the bivalent COVID-19 vaccine. Okay, moving on. U.S. Senate panel spars over elevated food assistance spending an upcoming farm bill. St- story from Thursday, February 16th. It's written by Adam Goldstein. Dateline, Washington. Members of the U.S. Senate Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry Committee split along party lines on Thursday as they tussled over financial accountability and farm-built nutrition programs. The main point of contention was the Department of Agriculture's 2021 changes to the Thrifty Food Plan, one of four food plans the USDA develops to estimate the cost of a healthy diet. The Thrifty Food Plan is tied to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistant Benefits Program, or SNAP, formerly known as Food Stamps. The program provides financial and commodity assistance to low-income households. Members also debated the associated rise in the cost of food aid in the coming decade. Committee Chairwoman Debbie Stabenow, a Democrat of Michigan, emphasized the critical nutrition programs in the Farm Bill help people afford groceries, make healthier choices, and support the food economy. They left millions of American families out of poverty, Stabenow said. These are our friends, neighbors, and relatives who deserve to be able to put food on the table even when they are going through a hard time. But several Republicans balked at the outgoing cost of the 2021 update, which they said was made without congressional approval. Our people's confidence in SNAP is undermined when this administration usurps Congress's power of the purse and unilaterally increases the program's cost by hundreds of billions of dollars without any concern to the fiscal impact and the impact on inflation, U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, an Iowa Republican, said. Federal nutrition assistance programs support one in four Americans, according to the Bipartisan Policy Center. The nutrition title is the largest set of mandatory expenditures in the Farm Bill, accounting for close to 76% of the baseline budget. The bulk of the food assistance programs included in the Farm Bill nutrition title consists of SNAP benefits. The program's cost... billion overall in 2021 and 2022, while serving more than 41 million people nationwide, according to the USDA. Maximum SNAP benefit allotments are calculated based on the USDA's Thrifty Food Plan. The Thrifty Food Plan represents the minimum monthly budget for a nutritious, cost-effective diet prepared at home for a reference family of two adults and two children, according to the USDA. The USDA's Food, Nutrition, and Consumer Services Commission updated the Thrifty Food Plan in 2021 after Congress authorized a reassessment in the 2018 Farm Bill. The change brought daily benefits up by roughly $2 per enrollee, marking the first food price-related benefits hike since 1975. The decision also hiked nutritious spending by roughly $35 billion from fiscal years 2020 to 2021. Republicans battle with the USDA. Senator John Boozman of Arkansas, the committee's ranking member, led a chorus of his fellow Republicans in denouncing the USDA's update to the Thrifty Food Plan. Boozman cited a Government Accountability Office report saying that from 2023 to 2031, changes in the plan will add approximately $250 billion in costs and expense incurred without consultation with Congress. I cannot overstate how damaging FNCS conduct has been, Boozman said. I'm deeply disappointed in its leadership. USDA Deputy Undersecretary for Food, Nutrition, and Consumer Services Stacy Dean defended the department's efforts to increase benefit accessibility and spending power amid budget concerns. Dean noted the department updated the Thrifty Food Plan based on four criteria for the model. Inflation, Population, Dietary Guidelines, and Food Availability. She noted that the update was a conservative effort that resulted in a modest increase of $0.40 per meal for each enrollee. You mentioned the four criteria. Cost is not part of this, Boozman responded. You go to the CBO score, zero. Congressional intent, zero. The USDA's help in regards to what was going on, zero. And yet you've increased it another $250 billion without any congressional interaction whatsoever. Grassley also noted the Congressional Budget Office projects the update would result in a $1.2 trillion in spending over the next decade. Senator John Thune of South Dakota, the Senate's number 2 Republican, asked if the Congressional Budget Office signed off on the update to the Thrifty Food Plan. I don't know if signed off as a technical term, Dean replied, but absolutely, we were collaborating with them throughout the process. Democrats advance for SNAP access. Stabenow said SNAP assistance is one of the most effective tools Congress has to stimulate the economy and that the thrifty food Plan update will help lift 2.4 million Americans out of poverty. Stabenow said that when the Biden administration took on the update in 2021, it had been left incomplete for three years under the Trump administration. The reality is that we put in place a policy to do a thorough update that hadn't been done since 1975, Stabenow said. Democratic Senator Kristen Gillibrand of New York said SNAP benefits prior to the pandemic were never sufficient to cover household food expenses and adjustments made during the crisis were necessary to ensure access to food security. The increases in SNAP benefits from 2021 through the Thrifty Food Plan update were long overdue, Gillibrand said. Let's make the case that these changes are important for this committee to look at holistically, not just an example as to what we used to spend and what we're spending today. Written by Adam Goldstein, who is the D.C. Bureau intern for State's Newsroom. He is a graduate student at the University of Missouri School of Journalism studying digital reporting. He is originally from San Francisco and loves swimming, cooking in the San Francisco 49ers. All right, Adam Goldstein wrote that. And I think we're well past the halfway point here in reading the Iowa Capital Dispatch, reminding that you're listening to Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. This is Andrew Hopp with the microphone filling in for Stephen Gazier. I say thank you so much for joining us, as uh, this is my first time here reading the Capital Dispatch. This is a wonderful publication, and I want to just say uh, hope you're having a great day, and uh, thanks for listening. If you have any questions or... Have, Comments about this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at the office, 515-243-6833, or 1-877-404-4747. Well, since there's really no obituaries in this particular paper, this isn't that type of paper, uh, we will read to you the commentary section. Chat, bots, and plagiarism, will we get over it? That's written by Michael Bougasia, published February 16th. In 1999, Scott McNeely, CEO of Sun Microsystems, told reporters and technology analysts concerned about Internet algorithms that people have zero privacy anyway, get over it. The comment shocked people with the emergence of ChatGBT, or Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, a free online application that dialogues with users Teachers are in near panic with concerns about cheating, specifically, plagiarism. It will take a while for us to get over it, but we will. When McNeely made his privacy comment, eBay, PayPal, and Amazon were in their infancy. Facebook would be founded five years later. Twitter two years after that. Google Maps came online in 2005. Street View not only showcased property, but also occasionally caught people doing assorted embarrassing things. In 2007, an attorney complained that Google can violate privacy by photographing you in an embarrassing state of undress as you close your blinds, for example. Google had caught him smoking and he was hiding that from his family. The public was shocked about Street View for about a year, then it wore off. People gave up privacy for the convenience of car directions. Terms of surrender. In 2010, my Iowa State colleague, Danella. Dimit Trova and I published a book titled Vanishing Act, The Erosion of Online Footnotes and the Implications for Scholarship. We trace the history of convenience from a caveman's rock to an influencer's blog. Communication has four basic features. Durability, storage, portability, and convenience. An inscribed rock can last for centuries, but you can't write much on it or easily tote it. Clay tablets, scrolls, and books provided more storage and portability. Then came Internet, the ultimate inconvenience. We don't have to leave our home. We order in, pay bills, stream content, and work in pajamas. People will give up anything for convenience, risking privacy and identity theft. This was McNeely's message more than two decades ago. At the time, artificial intelligence was almost a half century old, making tremendous strides. Between 1957 and 74, scientists developed algorithms that would lead ultimately to ChatGPT and other bots that now write essays and pass law and business exams. They even fool developers into believing they are sentient. Take my word, prose isn't dead. We just won't be doing much of it in a variety of jobs. Chatbots have infiltrated the writing professions, customer support, programming, media planning and buying, judicial filings, and consulting. Then that last category will impact the pocketbook of many professors fretting that ChatGPT has killed the required term paper. Artificial intelligence operates on theft. Consider the definition of plagiarism. Presenting someone else's work or ideas as your own by incorporating that into your own content with full acknowledgement. Computer scientists call that machine learning. Chatbots analyze what you ask them, evaluate responses, swipe content by others with similar requests, prompt for more information, scour the web for answers without citation, and access data on your device if you agreed to the app's term of service. Are you worrying about plagiarism? Get over it. Getting over it. Here's what's in store. Corporations will invest in AI, that's artificial intelligence, lower wages and downsize, Corporate profits will rise as chatbots innovate everything from onboarding to operational strategies. Consumers will interact with chatbots at all hours without having to wait for retailers and banks to open. People can complain vociferously about inferior products and services without the chatbot losing composure or calling you a Karen or Ken. School systems will try to ban chatbots purchasing services to detect cheating. But results will be unreliable as AI content improves and digital na- natives find workarounds. Gen Z discovered how to cheat while remote learning during the COVID pandemic, They're loving chat GPT. Eventually, plagiarism will morph from failing grade to reprimand. The public will become bored with a slush pile of mediocre machine prose. patronizing authors with insight into the human condition. Their copyrighted works will continue to sell. Infringement will remain on the books. Content owners will decide who, when, how, and where original material may be used. If they can document any monetary loss, their attorneys can sue the offending parties. A chatbot will write the legal brief and file it with the court. And Michael writes a bit here about interviewing a chatbot, but we won't go into all that. Interesting theories. Very interesting. In other news, as written by Jared Strong of the Iowa Capital Dispatch, new House bill has significant restrictions for carbon dioxide pipelines. This story keeps rearing its ugly head year after year. It begins. The three carbon dioxide pipelines proposed in Iowa are economic development, quote-unquote, projects that do not deserve the full weight of eminent domain to complete them. State Representative Stephen Holt, a Denison Republican, said Thursday... Holt unveiled a new bill that was submitted that morning and co-sponsored by 21 of his colleagues that would impose a comprehensive set of restrictions on the pipeline projects. Some of the bill's provisions govern the permitting and construction of the projects, and others give landowners more avenues for compensation for damage to their properties. It has the potential to affect three companies' proposals to carry captured carbon dioxide from ethanol plants in Iowa for out-of-state sequestration and other commercial uses. Notably, the bill would require the companies to obtain voluntary easements for at least 90% of the total route of their projects in Iowa to gain the power of eminent domain to force easements for the remaining 10% or less. That proposal has gained the public support of the powerful Iowa Farm Bureau Federation and increases the likelihood of the bill's passage at the Statehouse, Holt said. I fundamentally do not believe that government should use the power and the blunt force of eminent domain to take other people's property when it's a private economic development project, he said. Holt said the decades-old laws that govern liquid-hazardous pipelines, which historically have carried substances such as oil and anhydrous ammonia, didn't contemplate the current carbon dioxide proposals. The bill would also delay any permits for the projects until the U.S. Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration finalizes safety guidelines for carbon dioxide pipelines, which Holtz said was expected sometime next year. In terms of new construction requirements, companies would have to abide by county zoning ordinances to determine the pipeline routes. At least two counties have recently adopted ordinances that set minimum distances from residences and other buildings. And under the new bill, pipelines could not be constructed in Iowa until companies had secured the necessary permits in other states to complete the entire project. The proposed pipelines of Summit Carbon Solutions and Navigator CO2 Ventures would travel through five states, and Wolf Carbon Solutions is in two. Summit's project runs about 680 miles in Iowa, Navigator proposes about 810 miles of pipe, and Wolf's project has about 90 miles in the state. Some landowners have been calling for new legislation that would protect them from eminent domain and other aspects of the projects. Five bills introduced in the Iowa Senate last month would limit or bar eminent domain for hazardous liquid pipelines, limit the company's ability to conduct land surveys and negotiate easements for that land, and require them to identify their investors. None of those bills have received a subcommittee hearing date. Five companion bills in the Iowa House were introduced this week, but Holt said his bill has the best likelihood of passage. We believe that our approach is the more legally sound approach at this point that we could get support for and pass off the floor, he said. The pipeline companies have opposed major changes to their regulations in the past two legislative sessions. Iowa has one of the most robust, thorough processes already in place that guides the development of pipeline infrastructure, and we don't see changes needed to that process, said Andy Bates, a Navigator spokesperson. We are committed to working collaboratively with landowners and negotiating in good faith to secure as much of the project footprint in a voluntary fashion as possible. Navigator has declined to disclose the percentage of its route in Iowa, for which it has obtained voluntary easements. Summit said it recently surpassed the two-thirds threshold. A full two years after we announced our carbon capture project, we remain hopeful that the legislature will not change the regulatory rules in the middle of the game, particularly with the overwhelming level of support we have among Iowa landowners, Summit said in a prepared statement. Summit has already paid about $200 million to landowners that it would not recoup if the project stalls. The losses the company would incur if there are rule changes has, have been a prominent argument against the new legislation. More recently, ethanol advocates have said the pipelines are necessary for the industry to thrive in Iowa. Let's talk about the landowners, Holt said. Let's talk about the Century Farms that have been there for one, over 100 years. Let's talk about these property owners that don't want this pipeline under their farms. What about them? What about the rug being pulled out from under them? In other news, Governor Kim Reynolds signs new medical malpractice liability limits into law. Second bill aimed at rural health care access advances in Iowa Senate. written by Robin Opsall. Dated February 16th, which is yesterday, 5.14 p.m. And I say yesterday, that means Thursday. I'm recording this on Friday afternoon, everyone, so bear with me here. One of Governor Kim Reynolds' proposals to address rural health care shortages in Iowa became law Thursday, while another passed out of a Senate committee. Reynolds signed House File 161 limiting liability for doctors and hospitals from medical malpractice lawsuits. Both chambers passed the measure earlier in February. Today, Iowa joins the majority of U.S. states by enacting common-sense medical malpractice reform that places a reasonable cap on non-economic damages, Reynolds said in a statement. Protecting our health care system from out-of-control verdicts promotes access to care in communities across our state and better positions us to recruit the best and brightest physicians to Iowa. Iowa already places limits on non-economic damages and medical malpractice lawsuits at $250,000 for cases in which the patient's injury was not permanent, substantial, or fatal. The new law puts caps on non-economic damages on incidents resulting in loss or impairment of a bodily function, disfigurement, or death at $1 million for clinics and doctors and $2 million for hospitals. Reynolds and Republican lawmakers said that caps target nuclear verdicts by juries that award millions to victims of medical malpractice cases. Supporters of the bill said these awards and the insurance costs healthcare providers take on to cover these lawsuits are putting rural hospitals out of business. All but one Democrat and 16 GOP lawmakers voted against the caps, saying it was immoral to put a limit on the value of human life. The law does not limit economic or punitive damages, nor does it apply to cases where the health care providers showed willful and wanton disregard for the patient's safety and well-being. Chris Mitchell, president and CEO of the Iowa Hospital Association, said the new law is a positive step toward providing access to health care for all Iowans. It stops the rising cost of medical liability insurance, meaning Iowa hospitals can continue to recruit top talent in the health care field while ensuring access to affordable, high-quality care for patients, Mitchell said in a news release. Reynolds' plan advances without expanded birth control access. Passing liability limits was one of the priorities Reynolds outlined at the beginning of the legislative session as a strategy to address health care shortages in rural areas throughout the state. Additionally, she proposed creating two new regional centers of excellence to provide specialized medical services in rural and underserved communities and establishing new OBGYN training fellowships in her health care omnibus bill. The Senate Health and Human Services Committee on Thursday approved Senate Study Bill 1139, which contains many of the governor's priorities. The Senate bill does not include the -the over-the-counter birth control component in Reynolds' original proposal. House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst, Democrat of Windsor Heights, said over-the-counter birth control access has won bipartisan support in the House in the past. In a Senate subcommittee meeting earlier this week, Senator Jeff Elder, Republican of State Center said the birth control provision could come up again this session. Confirst said Democrats have not had any discussion with the governor or GOP leadership about future contraception legislation. The governor has opportunities to work with us on things like this, right? Confirst said she can come to us and we can have these conversations. It doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have to be political. Abortion rights advocates oppose more money for crisis pregnancy centers. The bill also contains expanded funding for more options for maternal support or moms program, increasing from $500,000 to $2 million. The money would be available to nonprofit pregnancy resource centers, also known as crisis pregnancy centers. These organizations promote alternatives to abortion. The program would also expand in scope to cover their fatherhood engagement grants to encourage fathers to stay involved in their children's lives. Planned Parenthood Advocates of Iowa held a press conference Wednesday where people who had received services and worked at pregnancy centers spoke against those facilities' practices. Ray Garbers, a transgender man, said he went to get an ultrasound and medical advice from the Bridge Haven Pregnancy Pregnancy Support Center in Cedar Rapids without realizing the staff were not medical professionals or that the organization was anti-abortion. The person doing the ultrasound told me they were having trouble finding the pregnancy, so they basically said that I was either beginning to miscarry or I wasn't as far along as they initially thought. Garbers said. I asked if they were sure that it all that's all it could be, and there were no other possibilities, and they re- reassured me multiple times and sent me home with a one-sided sheet for miscarriage precautions. But when Garbers went to the emergency room two days later for extreme ab- abdominal pain, the doctor said he had an ectopic pregnancy, a fertilized egg grown outside of the uterus." Doctors performed an emergency surgery on Garber's and told him if he had come to the hospital even five minutes later, he could have died from blood loss. Garber said these pregnancy centers should be required to tell patients their staff are not medical professionals as well as disclosing their religious affiliations. Democrats brought up concerns about the safety of these pregnancy centers during Thursday's committee meeting and said that the religiously affiliated organizations should not be promoted as legitimate health care providers. Edler encouraged Iowans do not have issues with other health care providers like Mercy One or Iowa Methodist for their religious affiliations. The bill passed 8 to 2 with three senators absent. I think we can all agree maternal options are limited in Iowa and I hope we can get support on another bill that would be coming next week or soon to follow that would help expand those opportunities for OB and birthing centers, Edler said. But this is one step towards providing care for rural Iowans, really taking a full appro- a full approach to the family. The bill moves to the Senate floor from there. All right, our final story here. We're not going to be able to take it all to you because it's a little long, but we'll start into it and we'll kind of work our way towards the end of our time together. Biden says no evidence yet that unidentified objects were tied to China spying. Hmm. It's written by Ashley Murray from February 16th. Dateline, Washington. In his first address since the U.S. military shot down three unidentified flying objects last weekend, just days after taking down a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon, Joe Biden on Thursday defended the actions and said the skies above the U.S. will now be more closely scrutinized. Biden, who was under increasing pressure from lawmakers to address the unprecedented situation, also said nothing so far suggests the mystery objects were related to Chinese surveillance or spying by any other nation. The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions, studying weather or conducting other scientific research, Biden said. Biden said during his brief remarks that he has no apologies for ordering American forces to shoot down the sizable Chinese balloon suspected of surveillance capabilities and said that he expects to speak with China's President Xi Jinping to get to the bottom of this. Quote unquote." China denies the balloon was used for espionage, saying it was collecting weather data. The U.S. maintains that China operates a vast surveillance balloon program over the U.S. and nearly 40 other countries. Biden said there is no evidence of increasing numbers of unidentified objects in the skies. We're now just seeing more of them, partially because the steps we've taken to increase our radars, to narrow our radars, and we have to keep adapting our approach to dealing with these challenges, Biden said. But make no mistake, if any object presents a threat to the safety and security of the American people, I will take it down, he said. Debris in deep waters. Fighter jets from bases in Alaska and Wisconsin were ordered Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to take the objects down over Alaska Sea Ice, Canada's Yukon Wilderness, and Lake Huron, respectively. As of Tuesday, White House officials said that none of the debris had yet been found in the difficult terrain with temperatures well below zero and in waters of up to a couple hundred feet. Some lawmakers have been urging Biden for days to address the nation about why he ordered the objects to be shot down, what the objects were, and what the protocol will be going forward. Americans are worried, they're concerned, and they're interested. They were right to know why Biden directed the actions that he did over the last week. Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton said after Senators receiving a classified, received a classified briefing Tuesday, the White House and Pentagon offered little detail about the objects were each taken down with a nearly 200-pound air-to-air missile. The first AIM-AIM-9X Sidewinder missile fired from two F-16 jets over Lake Huron missed and landed in the water. Pentagon officials said Tuesday the second missile hit the object and debris crashed into the Canadian side of the lake, according to the administration. The administration promised Tuesday to update the public by week's end about a new interagency policy plan for deciding whether to take action against unidentified aerial objects. Senators who were privately briefed said they were told the objects were very, very small, according to Idaho Senator Jim Risch, ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And that takes care of all the time we have for this reading of the Iowa Capital Dispatch here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Hope you're having a great day, everyone, a great morning, evening, overnight, whatever the case may be, whenever this is airing. This has been Andrew Halp with you saying thank you so much for listening. Have a nice day and straight ahead.